0: Our sermon this morning comes from Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Father, great does great joy in my heart to now come before your people and to declare to them the true word of God. I ask that you would help us now through your spirit that we too may cry with heaven itself, hallelujah, to our Lord God, the Almighty. Let your word stir within us great delight and affection for you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. On Sunday, October 30th, 1938, millions of radio listeners were shocked when the news announced the invasion of Earth by aliens from Mars. Many panicked when they heard of the Martians' ferocious and seemingly unstoppable attack on humanity. Of course, it was a hoax. It was Orson Welles who fooled millions of people in his adaptation of the novel by H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. The script unfolded by interrupting a musical variety program by the CBS radio network. Now you know in 38, this was pre-television time, many were sitting by the radio in their living room listening to the musical program which was interrupted at 8.50 p.m. with news of a huge flaming object, perhaps a meteorite, that fell on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Well, the program then resumed and continued, only to be interrupted once again, this time with an eyewitness account of a reporter on site who spoke of slimy Martians emerging from a huge flying saucer and began shooting indiscriminately their laser guns. They began this program warning everyone that this was a hoax, that this was an adaptation of Wells' novel. In fact, even throughout the program, they interrupt and say, what we're telling you is not true. It is a fiction. And yet those who only caught glimpses of the program began to panic. In fact, across the United States, reportedly millions reacted. Certainly near New Jersey, thousands loaded up their cars and fled that area. Others were reported to begin to create improvised gas masks. Still, others flocked to churches in somewhat of a hysteria, thinking the end was near. Of course, we're too cynical to believe such things these days, aren't we? Perhaps. But I will tell you that in January 29th, 1991... K-H-S-E in St. Louis, Missouri, interrupted their program with the emergency broadcast system in which the DJ followed with these words, your attention please, this is not a test. The United States is under nuclear attack. I repeat, this is not a test. Many did not verify that, and, and hundreds of people in that area left immediately from work to race home to be with their family. This idea of announcing the imminent doom is uh, something that is not new, something that Americans did not create. In fact, it can be traced back thousands of years, even 500 years before Christ, to a man named Aesop who, uh, before the birth of Christ, told a fable of a boy who cried wolf. You, of course, know this story of a shepherd boy who's watching the village's sheep and grew bored of that task, and he thought it would be fun to yell wolf, wolf, and watch the panicked villagers come to his rescue. He, of course, did this time and time again until finally a real wolf came and he yelled help, and no one came. They considered it a hoax, even though it was true. I think perhaps the villagers' sentiment that this is true, this is a hoax, perhaps captures the modern day sentiment concerning the biblical teaching that on that glorious day, Christ will come, He will return. I imagine if you told the average person on the street that you believe Jesus Christ one day will return from heaven with a rod of iron and a sword, they would look at you somewhat strangely. They would probably think you can't be serious in a day like this that you actually believe such fables. The trouble is that one day people will discover that it is no fable and that day will be too late. God does not amuse Himself by causing meaningless panic. Jesus himself announced, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm here to tell you it is no fiction. It is no hoax. God does not cry wolf. He is returning. And he will be triumphant when he does. Of course, we already know that when Christ came the first time, he was triumphant. This today, as you know, is Palm Sunday. A day in which we remember the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. Perhaps we can look at John's account just for a moment. Here we see that it as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he did so to great acclaim, great celebration, and indeed great praise and I would say worship. For John chapter 12 and verse 12 we read the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see the great jubilation that the pilgrims flocked to Jesus as He rose triumphantly into Jerusalem. They took their robes off their, their shoulders and laid it in the dirt before Him. They cut down palm branches and, and put them before this King amidst the shouts of their praise and celebration as Jesus ride rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's interesting, isn't it? Because nowhere else in Scripture's account do we ever have Jesus riding any animal whatsoever, and yet on this specific time he chose to ride an animal. In fact, he even chose to send two disciples ahead of time to make sure that he got a donkey—a very specific one, one that had never been ridden before. What's he doing? Why come not walking as he seemed to do everywhere else, but at on this one time he came on a donkey? Well, he's fulfilling prophecy, isn't he? And John records it here in verse 15. He says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, as he quotes Zechariah, the great prophet of old. See, Jesus is declaring when he arrives that he is arriving as a king. That's what he's saying on the back of that donkey. In fact, Luke records the, the people who saw him declare blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew said, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king as they all gathered together to shout Jesus' praise. In fact, I don't know if they realized this, but they too were fulfilling prophecy. It was not simply Christ who fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy by riding the back of a donkey, but the crowds joined in in the fulfillment. For Zechariah 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. And as the people gathered in the street and cried out in praise and leapt for joy and sang their great acclamation to Jesus, they fulfilled what God foretold they would. As Jesus came triumphant. Well, I'll tell you, as we have already established this morning, that Jesus is coming again, and he will be no less triumphant when he returns. In fact, if you look in Revelation 19, which I believe to be an account of the return of Christ, you see that they will respond very similarly to those who saw Jesus 2,000 years ago riding into Jerusalem. In fact, in verse one, we see they will cry out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Again, verse three, they shall cry out, hallelujah, and in verse four, amen, hallelujah, and again in verse six, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's the only place in scripture you'll see this word, hallelujah, it's in Revelation chapter 19, it's a Hebrew word, it's a compound word, hallel means praise, yah meaning Yahweh, praise God is what they're saying, over And over again. There's this massive outpouring of praise to God. The multitude of heaven rejoices in their God. They begin to worship Him when Christ is getting off His throne to return to this earth. They praise Him. In fact, you notice John gets somewhat caught up in this, don't you? In verse 10, he says, Then he fell down to worship, uh, to his feet to worship Him. That is an angel. The angel said to him, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. He says, you see, John, I think is so overwhelmed by this vision, by heaven's thunderous celebration that he begins to worship this angel. Now, if I'm writing the book of Revelation, I think I would have left that out. I think I would probably not have included this folly. You see, John's not boasting here. He's confessing. He got caught up in it all. The angel rebukes him and tells him where his worship ought to be directed. And he says, you ought to be worshiping God. In fact, friends, I believe the main reason God gives us Revelation 19 or even the book of Revelation, or I'd probably say the the Bible itself is in order for you and I to have great grounds to praise and to worship and to glorify our God. This is what uh, the angel tells John to do. In fact, there seems to be in heaven some type of uh, uh, worship minister, if you will, a director of worship. For you note, verse 5, it says, And from the throne came a voice saying... Now this isn't God's voice, it's someone else nearby the throne. And notice what the voice is saying, it is a call to praise, a call to worship, for he says, praise our God. Therefore, it's not God himself who's singing this, but it's someone else who stands there in the courts of heaven and calls for the church to praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Well, I think that command is obeyed well, for you note verse 6, their obedience to this call. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. See, John didn't live in our day, does he? He doesn't know the sound of a jet flying overhead or a tank firing its cannon. He doesn't know what it's like to turn up the volume on your radio to as high as it can go. So he thinks of the loudest sounds he could think of in order to describe heaven's worship of God. He says, sound like peals of thunder. Sounded like the roar of water. And yet it, it wasn't these, these noises of destruction, but of the church's joy. He's overwhelmed by the intensity of their worship, by the volume of their praise. If I can say, by the way, I think this, this is one of the reasons we ought to gather. It's one of the hundred reasons we ought to gather routinely and worship God together, shoulder to shoulder. We need times where we stand with one another in celebration of God. We need times built into our schedule when we shout to Him. Yeah, amen, that's right. When's the last time you shouted not at a sporting event? Right. We need to get together to praise our God, to shout to Him, to declare, amen, hallelujah, we love you, Jesus. And He gathers us together as He did in heaven in order they, they might praise Him. In fact, every time you look in the book of Revelation, we get glimpses of earth and heaven, earth and heaven, earth and heaven. And you know, every time we see in heaven, we see the people who reside there occupied with one reality, and that is the worship of God Himself, the Almighty. They praise Him over and over and over again. In fact, I think much of our eternity will be spent in praise of God. In fact, I would say all of our eternity will be spent in worshiping God in one way or another. And when I say that, I wonder what you think. Perhaps there are some here who think that can't be. I can't imagine spending my entire eternity focused on anyone. I can't imagine spending my entire eternity praising God or worshiping Him in one way or another. And I think if we have that in our heart, what we have done, what we have failed to do, rather, is to actually describe accurately who God is. If the idea of worshiping God and praising God, even for eternity, does not fill us with delight, I don't think we really understand who it is, this God, who has saved us. Who it is, this God, whom we ought to worship. Pastor Mark Dever writes that God has become less interesting than TV. His commands less authoritative than our appetites. His truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet flaw, fog of flattery and lies. Does God bore you? Are you bored by God? I think many people are. And I think the real reality is that they're bored by God because they do not understand who God is. Because if we are going to communicate that God is simply someone who follows us around and enhances our lives, that God is simply a tool to get me what I want, whether it's to get my husband to behave or help me to raise my children or to help me when the doctors can't. If he's just something that actually I'm going to use to actually get my heart's desire, the idea of worshiping him or praising him for eternity will not fill us with delight, perhaps with dread. I think the solution, therefore, is to understand who God is. I think this is why we have Revelation 19. I think it is a beautiful declaration of who our Lord is and how heaven responds to that. Here in Revelation 19, we see a God worthy of worship, worthy of shouting, worthy of our hallelujahs. And so I simply this morning would like to listen in on heaven's worship. I'd like to see what's getting them so fired up so that you and I can worship God as well so that we can join in I think if we are going to worship God like heaven does we need to see God as heaven does and so I see three realities in this text for which we ought to worship God I tell you number one hallelujah praise God for the Lord God Almighty conquers number two I would say hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns number three hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty saves Well, let's consider, first of all, hallelujah, praise God, for the Lord God Almighty conquers. Note verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Heaven is praising God because He wages war. He conquers what Revelation calls the great prostitute. We see her described in chapter 17 and again in verse 18. She is sometimes called Babylon. And I believe she is the description, this great prostitute or Babylon, is the biblical description of this final uh, image of godless society, godless culture that rebels against God and leads us away. In fact, let's consider this great prostitute here in Revelation chapter 17. In verse 1, he says, Come, I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on, on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon, this great prostitute, as I said, is the godless society that will stand in opposition to God. She will do so by seducing people into her sin. We see this in their praise. Their praise chorus uh, lists her sins for us here in Revelation 19 and verse 2. As they declare she has corrupted the earth with her immorality. She seduces us into pursuing pleasures of this world. She seduces us in following after or pursuing power and wealth and acclaim and position and those physical appetites. I don't know about you, but I live in a culture where I believe I'm induced to follow these things every day. I believe we are surrounded by the appeal to chase after the wind, to give our life for the bubbles of this world, to love the trinkets, to seek after them, to fantasize about getting more of them, even to go into debt for them, to give our lives up for them. The Bible tells us this is no accident. There is a civilization that is coming, a culture in which we all shall live in, called Babylon, and she seduces us away from God into idolatry, and she does so more, I believe, every day. And though she cannot seduce or induce into pursuing these things, she actually kills. For you know at the end of their praise course there in verse 2, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Though she cannot get into uh, this sin, she actually will kill Those who rather would worship our Lord Jesus. In fact, if you look back in Revelation 17 and verse 6, it says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is where we live. We live in Babylon. What are we to do? Can we vote her out of office? Can we legislate her away? I believe in the democratic process. I think we ought to be involved in it. But I think we also ought to be aware that we will not defeat Babylon, but Christ will. For you see, they are worshiping Christ. They are praising hallelujah because he has judged the great prostitute. He has come against her. In fact, I believe there's a great description of what Christ will do here in Revelation 19 and verse 11 when he comes in this glorious day that we sung about We see in verse 11 of Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I like that verse there, that Jesus in his righteousness, his goodness, judges and makes war. I think it's important for us to understand this. I don't know if you have been told that Jesus is a pacifist, that Jesus will never hurt anyone. I rejoice that today is a day of grace, a day of great long suffering, a day of kindness and tenderness when God offers to anyone who would bow their knee, their eternal life, salvation, and forgiveness. Of course, we live in that day, but I tell you, the Bible tells us there's a day coming when he will ride not on the back of a humble donkey, but on a white horse charging into war, and he will make war against all those who continue in their rebellion, who refuse to worship him, and rather seek after the lust of Babylon. In fact, we see a further description in verse 12 As we read, his eyes are like the flame of fire And on his head are many diadems And he has a name written that no one knows but himself His eyes are blazing In other words, he is not happy You ever get that look from your dad? The blazing eye look And you just run, you don't know where you're going But you need to get out of there Jesus is coming, his eyes will be blazing We see his attire, his armament. In verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the true word of God. And so Jesus comes to go to battle against billions of people with all our planes and tanks and missiles and airplanes and submarines, bullets and guns. And what is he wearing? A helmet? A shield? A bulletproof vest? He's wearing cotton. He is not afraid of us. He is not intimidated by us. He is not threatened by us. We can nuclear arm ourselves. We can get all our guns. We can amass all of our nation's armies, and he will come in a robe to do battle. He comes not alone, for verse 14 says, we shall accompany him as we read, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. And so we will be there, We too will be wearing fine linen, in fact, not just any kind of linen, white and pure, as we go out into battle. Now, I'm not a soldier, nor do I pretend to be, but I don't know many armies who go to battle bearing white. I think they march in victory parades in their dress uniforms, but they generally go to war in fatigues or camouflage. This seems like we're dressed up to go out to dinner with our wives, not to go to battle. I think the reality is we won't be doing much battling at all. We won't participate. In fact, we see that he will do the work for verse 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He comes to do war. He comes with a sword and a rod. In fact, a couple nights ago, my, my son Gideon likes this verse. We were praying and Gideon was praying, and he said, he's coming with a sword out of his mouth. Isn't he, Daddy? That's right, with a sword out of his mouth. In fact, the Bible foretold he would, according to Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You see, by the word he created all things, and by his word he will judge all things. We complete his description here in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The rest of Revelation 19 describes the battle as somewhat anticlimactic. There's no nuclear holocaust or anything exciting like that. Jesus just simply wins. He defeats his enemies. He destroys Babylon. Church, understand this is Jesus. White horse, eyes blazing, white robe dipped in blood with a rod to rule the nations, to make war, king of kings, Lord of lords, crown on his head, and he comes to slay the nations. He comes to tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And I think it's incredibly important that we understand this, because this is typically not what we think of when we think of Jesus. Mark Driscoll, pastor in Seattle, has very much helped me understand that we far too often portray Jesus as some effeminate, robe-wearing hippie in a meadow with children on his lap. And we think of Jesus, every picture of Jesus I see, has feathered hair with some tranquil look in his face, and it's not what he looks like now. He is exalted. He is sitting on a throne. He has a crown on his head. And the reason John sees this vision, the reason he tells it to us this morning, so that we can know who he is. And I especially think this is incredibly important for us men in this room, for you boys in this room. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is a righteous warrior. I believe there's a warrior streak put in us. I see it in my children all the time. When my boys play, what do they do? They wrestle. They fight. Every toy they have is either a sword or a gun. Even if they grab their sister's doll, they turn it into a ninja star. Because they are made in the image of God. There is something in us that wants to defend the weak, to protect the innocent, to help the helpless, to defeat evil. I'll tell you, I will tickle, grab one of my daughters and I will start tickling them and it is not ten seconds before I get hit in the head with some improvised missile or slashed in the back with some wooden sword. Because my boys understand that men honor and protect women as it has been drilled into them from the day of their birth. This is what it means to be a man. You worship a God who is a righteous warrior and we are to be warriors as well. This is the Jesus we see in heaven. I think the reason that our churches throughout America are becoming so filled with women when men stay home is because we constantly portray a Jesus who's not worth worshiping for us men. We don't want some decaf drinking, robe wearing, sitting in the meadow God. We want a God on a horse who's going to come and one day get off his throne and do something about the wickedness in this world. And I'll tell you, the Bible tells us, this is your Lord. Hallelujah! For he shall judge the great prostitute. He shall make war against her. Now I understand that this is not the only image of Jesus. We do know that he was, came as a peasant. He was simple. He was humble. He was scorned and betrayed and mocked and beaten and died. That is also true of Jesus. And we ought to see him in this way. Don't misunderstand me. He came to give us life and we killed him. Then he rose from the dead. And still offers us life. After 2,000 years in great kindness, he's offered his hand of friendship. And still this world rejects him. And there is coming a day when he is done. He withdraws his hand and grabs his sword. There is coming a day when he gets off his throne because he is so sick of sin, mounts his horse, and comes to do something about it. And heaven sees it, and they erupt in worship because of it. They rejoice because of this work. In fact, I think if we see Jesus this way, it ought to encourage your prayer life. You know who you pray to? Not some guy hanging out in the meadow, but you pray to one sitting on a throne with crowns on his head and the army of heaven before him. I think this perhaps will help you overcome sin. Some of you are caught in sin, can't seem to get away from it. I think perhaps the problem is not you have a sin problem, but you have a Jesus problem. I think if you understood Jesus as this warrior, as this ruling, conquering king, you perhaps would have a little more respect and understand your sin a little more soberly. In fact, I think if we understand Jesus this way, it will lead you to have great patience and grace with people. You know, the Bible says, do not repay evil with evil. Instead, repay evil with good. I find that incredibly hard. That's difficult for me. But you know, the reason the Bible says not to take vengeance is not because vengeance is bad. You do realize that. We are not to take vengeance because vengeance is not ours to take. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Knowing that... I am free to love you. I am free to be gracious with you. I am free to lay down my life for my enemy. I am free to offer the gospel and forgiveness when you offend me over and over and over and over again. Because I know that there will be no wrong that will not be reckoned. There will be no wrong that will not be righted when my warrior king returns. Therefore, I can love you. Therefore, I can give everything that God, the Bible tells me to give, knowing that he's coming as a king. In fact, I think, friends, this ought to help us to worship. I don't know where you are this morning, but I want a king. I want someone who's coming in victory. I want someone who I don't find boring at all. It seems heaven agrees they worship him because of it. In fact, they sing another chorus. It wasn't good enough for one one chorus. You notice verse 3, they say once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, she's not coming back. That other woman who used to seduce you into sin and lure you away will not rise up and torment you ever again. She is put away with, away with, hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty conquers. I hope you understand that Hamilton Baptist Church is to be an outpost in this Babylon. And we are supposed to gather weekly in order to declare that though we may live in Babylon, we do not belong to her. We are, see, I think God shows us in advance what he will do in order to light a fire in our hearts that we may worship him well. John is in exile on this desert island. He is under the oppression of Babylon. And God says to John, Let me show you what one day will happen. She shall be destroyed by your king. And I think this enables John, even under the oppression of Babylon herself, to worship God well. We gather together as an open declaration that we choose God not this world. We gather together in order to declare we delight in our God, not in Babylon. One pastor said, corporate worship is an open declaration that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. We will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are set free from that which one day will be destroyed. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty conquers. All right, you think I'm going fast already, but we have to pick up speed. All right, so just buckle in. Number two, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Verse four, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. He reigns. You see this over and over in this passage. You see in verse four, that he sits upon a throne. Verse six, they declare that he reigns. Here in verse six, they call him the almighty. In fact, God is called the almighty throughout the book of Revelation over and over again. He has all might. He is limitless in power. The reason we need to understand that he not only conquers but he reigns is because his conquering is something he will one day do, but his reign is what he does today. And so when we see Babylon in all her ways, do not think that God is not in control. In fact, the book of Revelation begins with these words in chapter 1 and verse 4, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. He's the ruler today of the kings on the earth. We saw him wearing many crowns. We saw that he comes to rule. We saw that he is called King of kings and Lord of lords. And so King Jesus rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, humble on the back of a donkey today reigns over everything. In fact, the Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the itty bitty baby in his hands he's got you and me brother in his hands he reigns and though i understand his reign is hidden i understand opposition still lurks and sin still compounds but do not think that is because he does not reign He sits upon that throne in heaven this very moment. And you, friend, you, brother and sister in Christ, stand under His reign in which He has promised to use all of His omnipotent power only for your good. This is what He does for you. He reigns. He is our King. I think we perhaps know this in our hearts. Last week, we, in our study of the book of Romans, we saw that by His Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, his spirit compels us to cry out to God, you are my father, you are my Abba. But you know that's not the only thing the spirit helps us to cry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, the Bible tells us, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit calls us to two attitudes, two demeanors, two delights. This joyful, childlike confidence, he is my father, he is my Abba, and this joyful, knee-bowing submission, he is my Lord, he is my king, and I think we need both. We need an Abba, we need a Father, and we need a King who reigns. This is why I can worship in Babylon. This is why I can read the newspapers and see all that is going on or consider the allurements or the direction of our land. This is why I could understand in a couple of months when the Supreme Court rules on the sanctity of marriage and may not rule according to God's decrees, I need not fear, for my God reigns. He reigns today. Friends, the sovereignty of God is not some doctrine for you to ponder or consider is the ground of your hope and joy and worship. There is no one else like him. There is one God. This is that God, and he is your God. You are his people. No government will threaten his rule. No king will jeopardize his power. No movement will menace his control. After Jesus rose from the grave, he said in Matthew 28, verse 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have it all in heaven and on earth. So hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Lastly, consider hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty saves. Note verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We see two images here, two metaphors, one being the Lamb, one being a wedding. In order to have the wedding, we need the Lamb. The Lamb is a declaration that Christ is our sacrifice. In order for us to be united with God, we first need the Lamb of God to pay for our sin, which He did upon that cross, that wondrous cross that we sung about. I tell you, because God is good, He conquered sin. Your sin in Christ. John the Baptizer said in John chapter 1, and verse 29, looking at Jesus, Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is that Lamb. He is both a lion and a lamb, isn't He? He is both our warrior king and our Savior groom. In fact, I think if I could just add one more footnote, I think men have the capacity to be both. I guess this is the Father's Day sermon, excuse me. But men, we can be warriors. And men, we can be grooms. And we ought to be both. We ought to be grooms to our wives and warriors to this world. I'm afraid so often we reverse the two and end up being warriors to our wives and cowards to the world. Our God is nothing like that. He is this lamb who gave up his life because he loved us in order to save us. 1 John 4 says, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Galatians 2 says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Philippians 2 declares, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In fact, this lamb now wears a robe that's dipped in blood. The Bible doesn't tell us whose blood it is. Some speculated it's his enemies. I wonder if it's his own. He not only came to, will come to tread the winepress to the fury of God's wrath, he himself was tread upon for my sin, for your sin. His life was the dowry that was paid for us. You've been bought with a price by his blood. His death paid for all our sins, all my sin. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. What is it? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And because he's the Lamb of God, we are now therefore invited to the wedding of the Lamb. We see this here over and over, that we have come to this wedding. This is a picture of the celebration of the culmination of the work of God through Jesus Christ. And what do you do at weddings if not celebrate? I don't know if you can think of a more joyful occasion than a wedding. Weddings are designed to celebrate love and celebrate unity and celebrate a new future and to celebrate a new family. And this is the image he gives us to describe what it will be like when we are united with him. We are headed to that day. Right now, if you will, we are in the betrothal period. And we enjoy the anticipation of that day, but one day it will come. And John shows us what it will be like on that day in order to, for that we may understand the joy that is coming to us. On that day when the church is purified and glorified and completed and sin and fear and doubt are cast away, when the church gives up her crown of suffering for her crown of glory. On that day when all conflict and sadness ends and He casts aside all dangers and toils and snares. This is the wedding of the Lamb. This is a picture of our celebration. And I don't. by the way, I don't think it's going to end when the clock strikes midnight. I don't think this is one of those weddings that goes from 6 to 9. I think this is a picture of the joy and the celebration that we will have with God forever. This is a picture of the eternal joy in which we have. And because of that, verse 7 tells us, let us rejoice. Let us exult. Let us give Him the glory. Praise God because of it. Worshiping God is not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. I'll tell you, I never met a bride who once said, do I really have to get dressed up on my wedding day? Do I really have to walk down the I- do I aisle? Ha- do I have to look them in the eyes, Pastor? No, I get to. I get to, she says. I've been dreaming of this my whole life. I've been planning for this my whole life. This ought to be the church's attitude of that day in which we shall stand before the Lamb. Friends, verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. You are invited. You are not Babylon. You are the church. You will be handed a fork, not a sword. You are not the harlot. You are His bride. And so I say with heaven, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty saves. Are you bored with God? Do you find this God boring? Some do. I understand. I wonder if our worship perhaps is a bit tepid because we really don't understand who God is. This is why scripture tells us. God is not the tool to help you beat cancer. He's not the tool to help you raise your children. He is the object of your great delight and hope. Everything you enjoy in this world, he is 10,000 times greater. And they all point to him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Perhaps you don't even believe there is a God. Or maybe you do, but you certainly don't believe he's coming with a sword. I understand you're not alone. Most people outside of our faith would deny these truths. I wonder, though, what you base your opinion on, how you come to this conclusion. I tell you, I come to this conclusion as of billions of other people's, based upon an authority outside of myself the authority of the Word of God. And I tell you this morning, on the authority of God's Word, that He shall come again and you will see Him. And on that day, it will be too late. This is not a scare tactic. This is not war on the a war of the worlds. God does not cry wolf. Of course, he already came as a king, didn't he? You know, when he entered in that triumphal entry 2,000 years ago on the back of that donkey, they all came out and called out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David, they said. Hosanna to the king. You know what Hosanna means? It means save us now. They understood that he was a king who was coming to save. And yet within a week... Those same ones who cried out, save us, nailed him to a cross. They put a sign over his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And there he died. Jesus knew it would happen. You realize that when he came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday in the midst of that hysterical praise, that great jubilation, The Bible tells us he began to weep. While everyone was shouting, Jesus was sobbing. Luke 19 tells us when he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you would had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? He came humbly, gently, righteously to save, to give true joy. And they rejected his peace. They rejected his rule and he wept. Is the heart of a king who longs to save. He'll come again, not to save, but to conquer, to establish his reign. But I tell you this morning, that at least this very moment, while these words are coming out of my mouth, you can surrender today. On that day, there will be no surrender. But today is a day of surrender. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you that you and your great grace have given us great cause to worship him, great cause to praise him, great cause to adore him. We thank you that as we patiently endure all this world has against your people, we thank you that we, as we live in this fallen land, on this fallen world, that we may love, that we may forgive, that we may sacrifice knowing that one day you shall come to make all things right. We long for that day. We long for that day in which you shall ride from heaven, redeem the earth, and begin our eternal life with you. We ask you to come soon. We ask that one day soon we would be able to join the choir of heaven and that we too would cry out hallelujah to the Lord God, the Almighty. And as we wait, we pray that you would help us to do so well here that we would gather simply because we are compelled to praise you. We are compelled to worship our God. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.